Look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state, and flipping the state is a great testament to our country, because, you know... I know you know this, but it does bear repeating. That's the President of the United States asking Georgia's Secretary of State to find enough votes to overturn the 2020 election. Make it official right now. CNN can now project that the Democrats uh, will be the majority in the uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, John Ossoff, the Democratic candidate in Georgia, he is defeating David Perdue, the Republican candidate. Uh, earlier, we projected that the Democrat Raphael Warnock uh, will beat uh, Kelly Loeffler, the Republican candidate. So it's 50. And those were the unexpected results of the U.S. Senate seat runoffs in Georgia a few days after that White House call, producing two Democratic senators from a deep southern state for the first time in decades. Those 2020 election events are still very much in play today within Georgia's 2022 primaries. In fact, former President Trump has endorsed seven loyal populists against more establishment rule-based candidates like the current Georgia governor, Brian Kemp. As governor, I have a solemn responsibility to follow the law, and that is what I will continue to do. We must all work together to ensure citizens have confidence in future elections in our state. Thank you, and God bless. And current Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. The results will be what they are. I'm going to probably be disappointed because I was rooting for the Republicans to win, obviously. But I have a process. I have a law that I follow. Integrity in this office matters. Georgia, on our polarized minds today, on The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization nationally and at the state level. I'm Robert Pease. Georgia may be our nation's most purple state in terms of contested elections, but it's still deeply divided thanks to gerrymandering, the urban-rural divide, and racial issues, to name a few factors. We'll talk with three experts on this episode. Ken Lawler, a Fair District's GA, on the role of gerrymandering. University of Georgia's Dr. Charles Bullock, He'll explain how pivotal the Peach State primaries may be for Trumpian efforts to dominate the GOP this election and on to 2024. But we'll kick things off with Dr. Adrian Jones, Assistant Professor of Politics and Legal Studies at Morehouse College. She's an authority on the Voting Rights Act that prohibited racial discrimination in voting and also the 2013 Supreme Court decision that weakened federal authority over state election laws opening doors to the recently passed Georgia law, SB 202. Before tackling that issue, let's hear from Dr. Jones on the Georgia primaries and which side of which races are the most important to take note of in 2022. Uh, I think right now the GOP primary is obviously, and the gubernatorial one is obviously the most important. The Democratic gubernatorial candidate is already identified. So, you know, right now, who's going to run against Stacey Abrams? According to the former president, that needs to be David Perdue. He's definitely more aggressive. You know, he's given a Kemp a hard time in these uh, debates that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. But I think ultimately that division is probably of benefit to the Democratic Party 
And what about the Secretary of State's race? Is that getting a lot of attention there? I think so. And I mean, I'm uh, in terms of my belief that, for example, my students, and I think the citizenry, Black people especially, you know, I want people to become more knowledgeable about the various offices. And I think that, you know, Secretary of State has been a sleeper until the last couple of years, you know, until 2018 when Kemp refused to step down. And then, you know, this... Uh, drama with the former president and Raffensperger in the last election. And I also think, you know, having these high stakes races at the top of the ballot is important, right? Because it brings people out, gets them interested. But I still think that as Americans, we have a lot more work to do in terms of learning our down ballot races. Like who is running for judge? Who is running for public service commissioner? Who is running for some of these offices that have a large impact on people's everyday lives? Yeah, well, we also wonder about discussions there regarding the Herschel Walker Senate candidacy. On the one hand, it seems a positive thing to have more African-American candidates for Senate. On the other hand, here's someone who doesn't seem terribly well qualified and is supported by Trump. You know, Herschel Walker is beloved here and he's getting quite a bit of traction in the polls. So I would imagine that if I were to talk to students who were members of the GOP from my own institution, that they would be pro-Herschel Walker. And um, yes, you know, some diversity in the electorate, I think, is important. In the state of Georgia, you know, there are you know, maybe one or two at max Black legislators who have ever been members of the GOP. Every single person who's Black and legislating here is in the state is Democrat. Um, and I'm sure that some diversity in that regard uh, would be excellent. And I think it would provide some balance in terms of the research that I've done. So tell us, you know, over the last decade or so, some of the precursors to, you know, what we're seeing now in terms of these really important races. You know, as early as 2010, Stacey Abrams in particular was clear that the state had a much larger Democratic leaning than it was given credit for, that the National Party wasn't paying attention to the state in the way that it probably should. And so I think she can be attributed with mobilizing voters in a new way, identifying voters who were obviously untapped so that we can actually see in the elections now, 2020 being a great example, um, that the demographics here have changed, right? It's not solidly red anymore, as it has been for a very long time. There is a more diverse electorate, and it has resulted in a more purple hue to the state. So when you think about um, these primaries, is it kind of like an even playing field between the two parties in terms of their resources? I think so. I think especially this year, for example, and in 2020, especially over the senatorial runoff election, in terms of the ground game, the ground game of both parties has expanded and is well-resourced. You know, I can't quote you the numbers, but these races are allowing these candidates to raise huge money. You know, Warnock, Stacey Abrams, even Herschel Walker, Brian Kemp. I mean, these folks fundraising records right now even those who aren't officially on the ticket yet because we're not through the primaries. There's a lot of money and it's no longer just local or state money. 
it's nationwide money because the state is in play. Yeah. So what is it like teaching law and politics classes at this time with so much going on in Georgia politics? Are, are students more engaged? Are the classes more popular? I would hope so. I teach at a school that has a social justice mission. So we're already talking about these kinds of issues. I also teach at a historically Black college. And so I teach, and my subject matter is Black Americans and their legal and political development. And it's private. So I am allowed to teach about such topics. And it's not always obvious with students, but I think they are becoming more energized. You know, I never tire. I am fortunate. (laughs) Sometimes I think that's a bad thing um, to be living and working on a topic when it is so important because it gives me an opportunity for my work to, you know, make a difference, have an impact, help people to understand the kind of things that are going on. And, you know, I can be an academic all day, but I hope that I am of benefit to other people who aren't so steeped so that they can get clear understanding about what's going on, what we're doing, and what they need to be thinking about. Well, let's talk about your recent article on the historical context of the Voting Rights Act and the undermining of it under the guise of colorblind conservatism. How would you characterize this undermining the process right now in Georgia? The Voting Rights Act is not doing the work that it used to do because starting importantly with, well, starting in 1965, which if we talk about my dissertation, sort of shows very slow pushback against the Voting Rights Act that culminated in 2013 in the Shelby versus Holder decision. And the Shelby versus Holder decision essentially disengages Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act required what were called covered states to submit new voting laws and legislation to the federal government to be assessed for whether or not it discriminated, in particular, starting with Black voters, but with minority voters and language minorities, to determine whether or not the laws would be discriminatory. And because the Voting Rights Act has been undermined, it no longer prevented the passage of legislation like SB 202. People complained that bills like SB 202 are called Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow 2.0. But the fact of the matter is that slavery and Jim Crow in the United States was maintained because of the ability of states to exercise their police powers and make singular decisions. And these efforts by the GOP to make voting more difficult in cities easier in rural areas, does this affect race relations? I would say absolutely, right? And I would also say that Georgia has a history of the same. Now I'm watching the, you know, debates this week about between the governor candidates and gubernatorial candidates and the secretary of state and the whole down the line. And, you know, people on the stage are basically saying, you know, the election was stolen and Governor Kemp, for example, didn't do his job by holding this special session. I mean, it would simply be a blatant violation of the electoral turnout. But that's not odd for Georgia. Georgia had many elections, particularly early on in its days when, you know, if we can't beat Black voters by keeping them away from the polls, well, you know, we can count better. We can fraud better. We can change the rules more easily because, you know, people in power would prefer to stay in power. And this is a state with a racial divide. 
And so has that improved? Absolutely. Is Atlanta a great place to live? Yes. But it doesn't mean that Atlanta, Georgia, or the United States has solved its race problem. We've just heard from Dr. Adrian Jones of Morehouse College, an expert on how the weakening of the Voting Rights Act paved the way for restrictive GOP voting legislation in the aftermath of the 2020 elections. Stop the Steal kind of morphed into start making voting difficult, especially in urban areas. Over the same short period since the 2020 elections, there's been a lot of partisan map drawing going on by the GOP-controlled legislature. That tends to mean a larger number of deep red districts for both federal and Georgia state elections, but also a deeper blue hue in those remaining Democratic districts. Will the new maps benefit more extreme candidates in both parties during these primaries? Let's hear from Ken Lawler on that important question and how we got these new maps in the first place. He's the chair of Fair Districts GA, a nonpartisan group working to combat partisan gerrymandering in the Peach State. In partnership with the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, they gave the Georgia GOP some very low grades for the fairness of maps redrawn right after the 2020 census. Those grades were a C for the new U.S. congressional districts, a B for the Georgia House, and an F for the Georgia Senate. The math works like this. You take your census data and your election data and you figure out based on the political geography of the state, how many districts ought there to be? for let's say Republicans versus Democrats. That's the partisan uh, number. We also look at the the minority number, but let's take the partisan number because that's what the grade is based on, right? But because of the way people live in Georgia, Democrats cluster in cities, Republicans are spread out. There's a natural advantage to having your voters more distributed. So you're going to see a Republican lean anyway in the map, and that's just natural. There's nothing wrong with it. The Republican lean in the Senate map should have been anywhere between even or almost zero and plus four. The map proposed by the Senate was a plus five. And so because it was so far out of bounds of the statistical range, that map got an F. Yeah, and I believe the redistricting map for the U.S. House was a C, a C yeah. which is not, not a great grade. So is the aftermath of that even fewer competitive districts in the U.S. House? Yes, absolutely. We have none. <laughs> we, we have none. And that map is a very interesting story. Um, we have 14 congressional districts. The Democrats proposed a map which was 7-7. So an even split saying, well, we're a 50-50 state. It ought to be 7-7. The Princeton gerrymandering project said the fairest map would have been an 8-6. What the proposed one from the legislature one was 9-5. So nine Republican versus five. And so the Democratic map scored a B the Republican map scored a C. And I was the one who personally testified in the committee to this point. And I said, look, I don't like either one of these maps. I want an A map. The A map is 8-6. Yeah. And all of this is taking place in a state that seems to have been changing dramatically over the past 10 or 20 years. I mean, in terms of population growth, the growth of Atlanta is such a major business hub higher education levels. So how does all of this either work against that change or, you know, try to manipulate it? (laughs) 
I think that perspective is really important. If you go back to, we've studied redistricting all the way back to 2000s and before. In 2000, our state was dominated by Democrats. Okay, they drew the maps following the 2000 census, right? And it was at a time when the state's voting preferences were changing rapidly from what had been a long time conservative Democrat, traditional Southern conservative state where Democrats were in charge but the trends were changing rapidly. So they executed a very bad gerrymander of the map in 2001. That gerrymander was so bad that the maps were thrown out by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2004. Okay. Did that have the infamous cat map on it? Your- the dead cat district. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. the dead cat in the freeway district was one of the districts. <laughs> I don't yeah. remember which one it was. But the, back in those days, without sophisticated computers, you had the gerrymandered districts by eyeballing them on a map. And you could look at the districts and go, what is that shape? That is clearly not a a fair district, right? And that's what we saw in the 2000 maps, and they were thrown out by the U.S. Supreme Court. And during that time, so so what happens was, right after that, Republican vote share became very dominant. Republican vote share peaked probably around 2006, and our statewide race is up to around 55%. So we're a very Republican state all of a sudden. And what happened since then is the Republicans have been in charge of the state house, the state senate, and the governor's mansion. And they've taken advantage of redistricting. But since then, the pendulum has swung back. And so now, if you look at the 18 governor's race and the 20 presidential race, they've been toss-ups. So you have this demographic wave that's hitting Georgia. And it's largely because of the growth of Metro Atlanta as a major business hub. People come to Atlanta like I did from all over the country. It's no longer a, a traditional southern state, if you will, when you look at the metro areas, right? And so now we have re- we've gotten to this really interesting point where we're a swing state now over the last two elections. And the maps that were drawn were an attempt to hold off that demographic wave and that voting preference wave. And so the Republicans have executed a gerrymander on all three maps. Some are worse than others, to your point. Some get an F grade, some get a B. But they all favor the party in power, which is natural and legal, unfortunately. So, Ken, what else is important for our listeners to know regarding gerrymandering, polarization, and the Georgia primaries with potential runoffs coming up as well? I'm really anxious to see what the effects of these new maps are on the election in November. As I said, the maps were designed to be less competitive. If you look back at our 2020 election, only 50% of our state legislative districts were even contested. Compare that nationally, 65% of state legislative districts nationally were contested, even contested. And I want to see what those numbers look like this year, because I suspect that we have fewer competitive districts. I'm going to find out how the the election really turns out. We may see some relief from the court cases. Trends indicate that maybe one of the state chambers will flip in 24. It's hard to say. It's really hard to predict that kind of stuff. But that point in time is really interesting to us because When you have one chamber controlled by one party and the other chamber controlled by the other, now you have a way to talk turkey about a fair process because the party that's on its way out says we better get a fair process now. It's a very interesting inflection point in your representation. And so our view is we're in this for the long term, trying to get to that point so that by the time we get to 2030, this is a very different game in Georgia. A really interesting, if counterintuitive, point there from Ken Lawler, chair of Fair Districts TA. They see potential advantages to divided government in the state of Georgia. Hasn't happened yet. But when one legislative chamber is red, one blue, there could be real negotiation and maybe some real progress on important structural issues 
like fairly drawn voting districts. For now, though, Georgia remains all red at the state level, if surprisingly blue at the federal level. But with such tight elections, we wondered if those seats could flip again. So we reached out to one of the most respected scholars of Southern politics, Dr. Charles Bullock of the University of Georgia. He's going to help us define what's at stake in these 2022 Georgia primaries, starting with the GOP primary to determine who will face Democrat Stacey Abrams come November for the governor's office. Yeah, um, David Perdue, who is the challenger, the former senator, is he's Trump's man in this contest. And so, you know, he begins almost every statement he makes in his debates on television by reiterating the Trump lie, i.e. that Trump won the presidency, that Trump won Georgia. So, I mean, that's what you get out of David Perdue. Now, Brian Kemp, who is our sitting governor seeking re-election, was very much a strong uh, Republican, would love to have seen uh, Donald Trump win and still be in the White House. But he is very much on the outs with the former president because he did not do anything to try to stop the certification of the election. Now, as Kemp points out, you know, he didn't have the power to do that, but that's not good enough. That doesn't satisfy Donald Trump. Yeah, and it also seems unique to our age that the Secretary of State's office is now arguably as important as any other state office. Yeah, and uh, you're right. Brad Raffensperger, the incumbent Secretary of State, has been cussed by Trump just as uh, as Brian Kemp has. And again, Trump incorrectly challenges or charges Raffensperger with not maintaining safe elections, allowing the election to be stolen. Indeed, uh, some of your listeners may remember that just the Sunday before the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, there was an hour-long phone call that Trump put to Brad Raffensperger in which he asked Raffensperger to, quote, find, close quotes, uh, about 12,000 votes, which would have flipped Georgia. And Raffensperger, honest man, he's uh, he's an engineer, so he says, I'm guided by the data. So he refused and said, and indeed, it, it, if you go and listen to that transcript, which I'm sure is out there, you can read it. Trump makes these various allegations, and each one of them, Raffensperger is able to refute and say, no, no, Mr. President, you're wrong, that the election in Georgia was fairly done. And and uh, so he's now paying the price for this, and that Trump has endorsed Jody Heiss, who's currently a member of Congress, has endorsed Heiss to take on Raffensperger. So that's going to be another hot contest here. Yeah, and it's interesting that Stacey Abrams and her organization Fair Fight over the previous decade have increased turnout that a lot of people said wasn't there. After the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, I got to work with the New Georgia Project, founded that to start registering voters. I then created another organization to help turn those voters into active voters. And I've been working with a coalition of organizations that have been on the ground for years. And so I really hope people recognize that my investment in this and my role in this has been really about bringing it to scale. Raising money. So is it the case then that there's lessons for other states to learn from what's happened in Georgia? Uh, yeah, I think it is, uh, particularly in states that have substantial minority populations. And after all, the only ethnic group that votes overwhelmingly Republican are white voters. So in states where the white vote is less and less of the total, then there is that potential that Democrats could put together something akin to the Rainbow Coalition that Jesse Jackson talked about back in the 1980s. And so in Georgia, yeah, the uh, register 
Whites make up about 52-53% of registered voters in Georgia. And Texas is another state which, in time, is going to see minorities outnumber whites in terms of the registered voters. So there's a real challenge in the, say, over the course of this decade, I think, in Georgia and a number of other states, for Republicans, if they're going to hold on to their majorities, and maybe if they're going to remain competitive, they're going to have to broaden their appeal and broaden their base. Yeah, well, uh, Georgia will be very interesting to watch. We're also curious about a little more of a historical question, almost like a cultural question. It's surprising to us and remains surprising that Donald Trump, from his background, has this magnetic appeal among poor Southerners. Is the North-South cultural divide not really operative anymore? Is it really just like populist versus establishment? It's what it's increasingly become, yeah. And again, whether you're looking at a northern map, a map of a northern state or a southern state, you know, you see that uh, the urban areas, those are the blue dots, and then the vast expanse of a state, you know, the rural areas tend to be the Republican areas. So what Trump has done is to come in and give voice to the frustrations of folks who feel like change is taking place around them, change over which they have no control, change which they don't want to see. It may be change involving sexual uh, mores, change in terms of uh, increasing diversity in the population in the community in which they live, changes in their economic uh, status. So again, Trump comes in, speaks to those, those frustrations, those fears, and says, elect me and I'm going to take care of them. Now, again, the, the voter who is caught up in that appeal doesn't you know keep close tabs on it and it doesn't kind of take off well gee is trump delivering on what he said he was going to do is my life getting a whole lot better or not so he may still be quite frustrated uh, and unhappy with the situation but rather than turning on trump and saying well i tried your brand and didn't work it's going to be well trump is still saying the things i want to hear and maybe it's even that a person is has so so little else to hope for that it's kind of well you know, even if Trump isn't delivering, at least he's saying something that makes me feel better. Yeah, well, the emotional or psychological component is certainly important. We had a previous guest, Thomas Edsall of the New York Times, talk about polarization in terms of the, uh, the temperature of the country or the blood pressure of the country and how could we possibly lower it. Do you feel that there's some responsibility of Democrats to try and turn the temperature down, as Thomas Edsall suggests? Well, strategically, it probably makes sense for Democrats. You know, they want to be able to win across the country broadly. Uh, then you know, things which are on the progressive agenda are not going to play that well uh, in Georgia, in Texas, uh, and, and a number of other states. may play very well in New England, New York, California, but in the heartland, it isn't going to play well. And so Democrats probably be advised to back off on some of that. Uh, one of the interesting things is Raphael Warnock, uh, our senator who's up for re-election here in Georgia, is critical of the administration's intention to get rid of Section 42, the health care provision, which has been keeping immigrants in Mexico rather than letting them into this country. So again, uh, the left you know, very much wants to get rid of that uh, Trump-era provision, 
But here, Raphael Warnock, who by anybody's standards would be a liberal, is saying, mm, yeah, probably not a good idea. And uh, yeah, that's not going to play well in a place like Georgia and lots of other parts of the country. So Democrats can do better in much of the country if they take a more moderate course. Now, of course, that then creates a challenge for the Democratic Party leadership, is how do you keep the progressives who say the problem is that the Democrats are not you know, going far enough in tune with uh, the more moderates who are saying, if, if progressives take over the party, then it's going to do us in. So someone like Representative Abigail Spanberger, who represents a very marginal district in Virginia, chided her, her more liberal colleagues right after the 2020 election when, yeah, Joe Biden won the presidency, but Democrats ended up losing about a dozen seats in the House. And we need to not ever use the word socialist or socialism ever again, because while people think it doesn't matter. So that's a challenge for Democrats is to try to keep both components of that party working together and be willing perhaps for each side to accept half a loaf rather than demanding the full loaf. Yeah, well, what have we missed here? What should we have in mind as we watch the uh, Georgia primaries and possibly a runoff in June? What are some of the major kind of pressure points? Well, maybe the most interesting thing to watch in Georgia is going to be how the Trump team does. Uh, Trump has endorsed seven individuals running in Georgia. Uh, He's got candidates for governor, lieutenant governor, U.S. senator, uh, attorney general, uh, insurance commissioner. So how, how, what's his batting average after this? And if Trump you know, fares poorly overall, then that may be what uh, results in the Republican Party or the leadership of the Republican Party moving away from the former president. Trump, you know, if his candidates win, he has a very high batting average, then that just solidifies his position as leader of the party and probably also solidifies him as the Republican nominee for 2024. That's a lot on one state's plate this primary season. It may seem Georgia's just one state out of 50, but it has become the bellwether, the battleground, the quintessential purple swing state on our red versus blue electoral map. Thanks to all three guests in this episode for illuminating some of the hills, valleys, and fault lines on that map. Georgia will remain on our minds as we continue this series on state-level polarization, which started in seemingly deep red Texas, where in fact 3 to 4% of GOP primary voters play an outsized role. What about Deep Blue California, cultural rival to Texas, a trifecta of the Democratic variety, one of the most highly taxed and regulated states in the country, which may be experiencing some population decline? As in Texas, do hyperpartisan Democratic primary voters and candidates play an outsized role there? In our California miniseries, we'll speak with a variety of experts, including an eight-term Democratic California congressman who became not only a White House chief of staff under Clinton, but secretary of defense and director of the CIA under Obama. That's Leon Panetta, one of the most uniquely experienced political observers in the nation. And we'll meet the noted author, geographer, and longtime California resident, Joel Kotkin. He has some thoughts on changes in California in recent time, but also on the California-Texas rivalry. The California that I went to was a California where, no, you know, particularly Los Angeles, nobody gave a damn where you went to college. Nobody, it wasn't a heavily credentialed place. People started grassroots businesses. Some of them did really well, some of them didn't. 
That is now what I see in Houston, in Dallas, in Austin, in San Antonio, that kind of spirit. We hope you'll join us for these California episodes and for some other great upcoming guests, such as Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and broadcaster Maria Hinojosa and the noted author and Yale Law School professor Amy Chua. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, wishing you and yours a less than polarizing primary election season if possible. Our original music here is composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.